Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of Alpha Defense in times of P. Acnes. I hope you had a great week. Hope you're having a great day. I know I did. Today is going to be an awesome day. You're going to want to hang around for our interview segment. We're going to be speaking with the co-director of Ortho Carolina Hip and Knee Center, one of the largest joint reconstruction services in the country, uh, medical director of Novant Orthopedic Hospital, former president of the Knee Society, former president of AUKUS. And we, are, of course, are talking to Dr. Tom Faring. It's going to be awesome stuff. You're going to want to stick around for that. So I took a few days off this week to see one of our family members and got a chance to take my wife down memory lane in a town I grew up in back when Trans Am's Mullets, uh, also known as the Kentucky Waterfall, and Devo were all the rage. I rode by the house I lived in, and as I was sharing my my life story with Terry, uh, I remembered vividly my run-in with one of the most diabolical dinner concoctions my mom ever spawned. And that was, you probably guessed it from the theme music, it was liver and onions. Now, my parents came from a generation where you were thankful for anything to eat. You graciously consumed whatever was put in front of you, and they expected that same behavior from their spoiled, rotten teenager. There was not enough ketchup in all of Albertsons to get that nasty patty down. But you had to get it down because if you didn't need it, the kitchen was closed. And as the Pink Floyd song so eloquently stated, you can't have any pudding if you don't eat your meat. How can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat? As I relived this trauma with my wife, she reminded me of a similar situation earlier in our marriage that would forever be known as the Kasha Incident To the uninitiated, kasha is Slavic for inedible. It is a kind of pseudo-cereal side dish um, composed of buckwheat groats, don't ask, and onions with the consistency of mush. I was invited for a kind of meet-the-fockers moment with my wife's grandparents, and a heaping pile of this dubious grain was put on my plate, and I just had to push through it, right? So I asked for ketchup. That's my that's my crutch. None was to be found. I asked for salt, and after I completely salted the dish, I realized what had been given to me was salt substitute, and that only made things worse. So then I just had to strategically figure out how to get through this. I, I passed some surreptitiously to my wife, who was passing it on to the dog, but even he couldn't get it down after a few bites and started just staring at it. So I realized... Uh, we just got to push through this. I finally got the wood piled down to where you could see the plate. And then Grandma Bella said, and I'm not making this up. Try some of this. No, I don't want to. Eat, eat, your skin and bones. <laughs> she was channeling her future Kramer. Yes, she was. And then she proceeded to take a front-end loader and put yet another pile of this stuff on my plate. So what I learned from having to contend with liver and onions and kasha is our next topic in our series on character. And what is that word? But perseverance. 
So what is the definition of perseverance? Persistence in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. And I love the fact that nestled within that word is severe, right? Perseverance. And that can be different things to different people. So we got to be easy on each other because the thing that may be easy for me to get through may be very difficult for you and vice versa. Something that you could just sail right through would be a huge hurdle for me to overcome personally. I mean, you may love kasha. You may love liver and onions, but what in the world does any of that have to do with medical device? Well, it has so much to do with it because so much of this job demands perseverance. My wife gave me a great quote the other day. She said, the difference between a successful person and a failure is a successful person fails more. And I thought, where'd you get that from? That's pretty profound. She said, your son. Like, oh my gosh. One huge thing I learned as a parent was the value in letting my children fail and or struggle as not allowing them to fail and or struggle was to deny them the life skill of perseverance. Uh, as a side note to you parents out there, if we're honest with each other, we often protect them from failure and or struggle because it makes us feel bad, right? Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but as you get older, life just hands you more and more challenging things. And if you don't learn to persevere, and if your children don't learn to persevere through the little things, then when the bigger things come along, they can absolutely roll you. So perseverance is really like a set of bricks, isn't it? We're trying to construct a wall. One builds on another. We persevere through this. We persevere through that. And then hopefully at the end of the day, we've constructed a wall that will withstand uh, most of what life is going to throw our way. So a friendly reminder, perseverance, again, meaning persistence in doing something despite difficulty or delay. And underline that last word, which is critical in medical device, because so much of this business has seasonality to it, time, chance, struggle over time. Remember, it's a marathon, not a 5K. So let's wrap this up. The persistence in working through the little things, the kasha, the liver and onions, right? Hopefully it gives you a brick so that when you're going through the next step, you know, the purchasing people that can be challenging, uh, the pricing that you can't do for an account, those kind of challenges, staff challenges, leading you to more things that you have to persevere through, back orders, product recalls. Uh, next thing you know, you're going through difficult times with, with the surgeons, Cases that are challenging that you've never done before, revisions with products you've never laid eyes on. I could just go on and on and on. This stuff just builds and builds and builds till finally you can develop a level of confidence in this thing, right? And on the time side, just waiting sometimes, plowing, plowing, plowing until something happens. I like that acronym, PUSH. Uh, and I like to tweak it just a little bit. We're going to plow positively and prayerfully until something happens. Just time plus persistence. It's challenging sometimes. You're getting emails sent out to the entire sales force of showing where everybody's at, and you happen to be at the bottom, right? All you can do is plow. I remember one time uh, a friend of mine was in the office, and we were alone. And I was complaining about just not being able to get anything going. It was very frustrating, and I was so discouraged. 
and he said something I really didn't want to hear at the time. He said, you know, you need to go out and make some sales calls. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That's the last thing I wanted. I wanted somebody to feel sorry for me and enable this dysfunctional behavior. But he kicked my rear end out of that office, and I just did it. I went out and made some calls. And, you know, one of those things ended up in a sale. So I learned something from that that day. Never stop plowing. Keep plowing positively, right? You're just not trying to bear under it and get through it and let the world know of the misery that you're being subjected to. You're going to smile. You're going to eat the kasha without ketchup, without salt. Stop feeding it to the dog and pawning it off on somebody else. You're just going to get through it. And keep pushing until something happens. And I promise you, the tincture of time will at some point fall in your favor. I love this quote, the best way out is always through. And no, my son didn't say that. That was Robert Frost. And it so embodies my next guest. I I listened to his life story and the perseverance that he walked out and what it produced on the other side. As he walked through it, it produced just an incredible body of work and, and an incredible legacy that goes on to this day. So I am so thankful to welcome to our show, Dr. Thomas Faring. Okay, great. Good to be here. Dr. Faring, you have made quite the impression in the joint reconstruction space over the years. And I, I look forward to asking you about your infection center, your knee replacement, uh, your research. But before we get there, take me back to Wake Forest in the mid-70s. Uh, what got you on the road to medicine and ultimately orthopedics? I had multiple injuries. Played five years, but had an operation just about every year. So I became very close to an orthopedic surgeon there. And uh, I got interested in, uh, in doing, doing orthopedics. Had a, had a bad infection in my knee, broke my forearm. Um, you know, had another minor, uh, some meniscectomies. Back in the day, they were doing those open. I had a lot of orthopedic experience, unfortunately. I imagine the open meniscectomy was what got you to a knee replacement, right? Uh, no, actually, the infection I had. I had an infection my first couple of weeks at Wake Forest that was uh, not treated uh, optimally. I didn't have surgery. I was just given IV antibiotics. And then a couple of years later, when they when I uh, and then they when my fever broke, they told me I'd go back to practice. So uh, my knee was never right after that, and uh, but I continued. You know, I played uh, with a fair amount of pain and. Uh, then I had a meniscectomy, and the guy opened me up and said, you got the knee of an 80-year-old guy. What happened to all your cartilage? And, of course, I didn't understand it then. He said, I need to stop playing football. And I said, yeah, right. You know, 20 years old. Of course, I'm going to play. And uh, my infection came back a couple years ago when, I, when it, I finally got down to bone on bone and broke into a cyst that had some strep in it. So ended up with a two-stage. So that's the that's the quick story. I, I'm old enough to remember those instruments to do the total meniscectomies. Really? Yeah, those curved, okay. those curved right. blades that you could wrap yeah. around and and do that. It's yeah. crazy. I, I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself, but I know that probably led to some of your passion with your infection center. Tell me, tell me about what's going on over there. Yeah, no question about that. I mean, I had, I had five months to sit around and think about it, and um, you know, I became a patient who went through a two stage basically uh, because they had to you know, put a spacer in and then wait two, three months and then put the real thing in. And I, I learned a lot about it. 
what it's like to be a patient. You know, the somewhat isolation when you're when you're used to going 110 miles an hour, and then you're going zero. Uh, the fact that uh, you have to go through another big operation in two or three months. And then one thing I wasn't aware of was how antibiotics can make you feel. Uh, I was on one antibiotic and I felt fine. And they changed the antibiotic halfway through and I became just terribly, uh, lost my appetite, lost 12 pounds, uh, became, you know, it really, really acted like chemo. And then I talked to my ID guy. He goes, well, you've been doing this a long time. Don't you know that antibiotics are just chemo? makes people feel crappy and so that was an education for me so i've become much more empathetic to my patients you know who have these problems to be perfectly honest it had to be um, kind of eye-opening to be on the other side of the aisle so to speak yeah and so i you know i said you know we all dabble in this stuff we we do more than most in our area we're a big referral center but you know to be honest a bunch of guys you know doing Doing ten of these a year um, probably isn't going to give them the the experience to to do a great job on it. And I was wondering whether we could start a prosthetic joint infection center, uh, which would allow t- a couple things: get the volume to become very good at treating infection. Uh, number two, providing a service to the, or the orthopedic surgeons in the you know in our tri-state area, and three, an opportunity for for studies. Um, you know, to find out what are the best protocols for patients. So that's what we started, you know, oh God, about 10 months ago. We've had about 400 referrals in, in, in the 10 months. Uh, I've got four other dedicated partners uh, who are interested in this. Uh, Brian Springer, Brian Curtin, Keith Faring, Jesse Otero. Now we've got a, a new guy, uh, Ben Wooster, who just finished his fellowship at Mayo. So there'll be you know, there'll be six of us, so we have a, you know, a nucleus that can handle this, the volume that we're seeing now, and it'll help us uh, finish two studies that uh, are multi-center studies that I'm very involved with and very interested in is the uh, multi-center one-stage, two-stage study, which has been a question that I've needed to answer my whole career, and we're probably about 80, 80 to 85% of the way uh, completing that. Um, we've got about 15 centers around the country contributing patients. Ortho Carolina's already contributed 60% of those. We have to get to 300, uh, and we're at about 280 now. So we're gonna get, we're gonna get there in short order. Um, the other study is the use of intraosseous antibiotics for uh, to try to improve the results of irrigation and debridement for prosthetic joint infection, which is, in my mind, mediocre at best, you know, less than 50% success rate. So we're trying to improve that for an acute treatment of acute infection. So you know, having this center is allowing us to, to get, get those numbers up relatively quickly. Um, my dream would be to have eight of these centers around the country and have these people referred to some place where guys are doing this, you know, multiple times a week. You know, I did two one stages this week, you know, uh, you know, so if you have these multiple centers, people are going to get treated a little better and uh, allow us to, to, to answer the questions appropriately down the road. If we put a study group together, which, which I've done. 
So I, I've been hearing a lot of different things uh, as I talk to people around the country about single stage, two stage, and I see guys doing dynamic spacers with cemented constructs, but I, I'm also mm-hmm. seeing a lot yep. more guys doing a CR femur and drilling a bunch of holes in the back of a, a poly and uh, just cementing that in there on the off chance that they're not going to be able to be booked for surgery because of COVID and it's a little bit better uh, kinematics going on there. What, what are your thoughts on that right now? Well, I wrote one of the first papers and won an award about 20 years ago for uh, using articulating spacers that were made out of cement. I had some concern about biofilm uh, by putting a metal and plastic one in. And uh, those are kind of clunky. Patients don't get great range of motion. They hear crepitation. Uh, but it made exposure easier and preserved bone. We're seeing bone loss in static spacers the way we used to do them. Uh, so I was on board long ago, and we presented a paper at the New Society about the functional results of that were, were better. Um, and so that's morphed into this kind of, you know, metal femoral components, put an all poly in. And uh, the guys in my group were doing this, and, and I wasn't, frankly, until I had my own done. And then when I had my own done, that's how uh, Bill Griffin, who did my surgery, said, let's, let's do this. Uh, and so I had metal on one side and, you know, uh, plastic cemented in loosely. Um, so that made me very comfortable. Uh, and I was able to bend, I was able to get about 90 degrees before I had my replant. So that's just pretty much the standard of care at our institution. We're doing a study comparing, uh, right now comparing that, uh, those type of spacers to the all methacrylate ones with antibiotics in it. So we'll let you know, but I, I, I we haven't had any disasters with, the. Uh, the more modern way to do it. My inventor side, and I, I, you've got a couple patents, and I'm an erstwhile uh, inventor as well. But my my inventor mm-hmm. side says uh, those old four peg tibias that Zimmer used to make uh, make a make a poly version mm-hmm. of that for for these mm-hmm. um, for these spacers. Uh, so yep. be really easy yep. just to cut the pegs off when you're done. Yeah, yeah. Richard used to have an implant like that actually. Yeah, I uh, forget what the number was. It's twenty five years ago. Uh, they just had these magic pegs, um, which which went into the bone and the bone in grew into the plastic. Yeah, in fact, I've got one of those in my glenoid. Tell me about different washout cocktails. Uh, somebody's coming in for a washout with you. What what are they getting? Uh, what what do you think is the state of the art right now? Uh, I don't know if it's state of the art. Uh, it's very controversial. Uh, one thing we do know is you start doing witch's brew and mixing things together. There's an article at uh, a paper at AUKUS a few years, two years ago, saying some of this stuff can precipitate out if you, you know, if you add the wrong mixture together. So you have to be careful about that. Uh, our one stage, two stage protocol, I followed Ferris Haddad's had some hundred percent success rate in a very small series of one stages. Uh, he's a friend. And um, so I copied his cocktail for our one stage, two stage study. And uh, that seems to be doing okay. So we do uh, peroxide in sterile water. Uh, so the way we do it is three liters of saline, peroxide in sterile water, right? Leave that in for three minutes, another three liters of saline, then dilute betadine, leave that in three minutes, and then another three liters. So nine liters of saline uh, and dilute betadine in dilute peroxide in between those. So that's our, that's, that's what we do. 
What are a couple things that the surgeons that listen to this show can be focused on right now to help prevent ever needing an exchange? Is there anything? Sure. You know, what What are the most important things that you're doing to avoid an infection right now? Sure. Patient selection. Okay. And I think uh, the standard of care now should be optimization. So I don't operate on anybody who smokes. That's, you know, number one. And they have to have a cotinine test a couple of weeks before surgery to make sure they, they stop smoking. And I tell them very frankly, if your cotinine test comes back positive, I'm canceling your surgery, which is disruptive to my practice, but I think it's important. Um, obesity, I've written a fair amount about, and there's plenty of data on it. If your BMI is over 40, you have a much higher risk of getting infected. So that's a difficult conversation with a patient, but that's uh, something we're very strict on. I also make sure that their albumin is normal, that they're not malnourished. That can be someone very thin or very obese because obese people are frequently malnourished, as counterintuitive as that is. So albumin, smoking, optimization, using some type of uh, uh, antibiotic impregnated dressing. There's 10 of them on the market and don't change it. Um, I think those are the four things that I would, you know, if you're going to change your life on Monday, do those things and, uh, you know, and don't give in because the people, you know, they'll, they'll whine and they'll cry and they'll say they can't lose the weight, but, um, it just has to be done. And there's so many people that we're doing a study now, just looking at our prosthetic joint infections and seeing what percentage of them are morbidly obese when they get referred. And I'm going to suspect it's 75%. Wow. It's, it's striking. And, you know, if we could just get people to stop operating on these people who are not optimized, then uh, the overall infection rate should lower. But the, the national data says we're really not doing a, making a dent in this uh, you know, incidence. Maybe we're better at diagnosing it now than we were, but the national data studies we haven't lowered the infection rate that much i think optimization is the key you've published over 115 articles or so in the orthopedic professional journals to help instruct surgeons and and uh improve patient care we all know the see one do one teach one you seem to be really passionate about the teach one aspect uh where did that come from oh i don't know i i've always thought of my my life is a tripod, right? I, I practice, I do research, and I teach. So that's my mission statement. And um, we've, uh, you know, we started with one fellow 20 years ago and morphed to two. Now we've got a very successful fellowship program here. We've got four guys every year. Um, they're going around the country, and we're teaching them, paying, trying to pay it forward. Hopefully, we'll, you know, you can make a, a difference there rather than writing an article or, or just doing lots of surgery. I'm, I'm not passionate about uh, – I'm passionate about teaching and not just cranking because there's a difference. There's a – you know, to teach, you have to decrease your caseload a little bit, right, to let them learn, teach, and operate. If you're not willing to make that financial sacrifice, teaching isn't for you. I love the quote you had about Neil Green at Vanderbilt using the Socratic method as a means of oh, uh, digging deeper. 
into <laughs> clinical issues. Uh, walk me through that. That's I've never heard that before. How'd you hear? How'd you, how'd you get Neil Green in out of this? I, I do a lot of research, doctor. Holy cow! Yeah, he was uh, he was a pediatric orthopedist, and I almost became a pediatric orthopedist probably because of him. And he was tough, and there was no yes, he would. But uh, at the end of our day, he would he would make rounds with us and just uh, ask us questions. We'd go room to room, and then there was a lot more people in the hospital. Then, but we'd go room to room, and we'd just just fire questions at you, and uh, learned a lot that way. And of course, you know, you'd get it wrong, and he'd, he'd explain it. But uh, yeah, that was he was tough, but he was fair, and uh, you know, I try to try to use that method, make people think. If, I'll just give them all the answers. Sure. Get the, get the switch on. I quoted your paper so many times over the years regarding the modern knee designs and the trochlear groove being deeper and that leaving exposed bone from a medialized patella and that being the potential for a pain point. Right. That was just great research. Uh, I, I remember telling a surgeon about that, and we ended up having two revisions for that very thing within the month. Uh, it was very timely. Uh, what was the inspiration behind that? You know, it's not the train, it's the tracks, right? I mean, that's, a, that's a common thing you hear. So right. why are you shifting the train to ride on one track? So we call it, the, you know, that, that medial shift of the patella to improve your tracking just doesn't make sense because then you're messing with the train. You got to get the track right, which means you have to balance the knee correctly. Don't put it into valgus. Don't translate either component medially and make sure you get your rotation right. So if you, you know, if you do that, just put it in the middle, it's going to be fine. It's not going to be a tracking problem. But if it is, you do a lateral release. You save the superior geniculate vessel when you do it. Uh, it's not a problem. So I always put my, my patellas on centrally so I don't have to worry about that lateral facet rubbing on the condyle. Because those people all don't do great. Uh, we had a little Bo Mason, one of my partners, did a little, you know, revised. We looked up our revisions of those, and those people still, a lot of them have anterior knee pain. So it's not a panacea just taking off that, that osteophyte. But there's no need to, to, to medialize the patella. If you've done the operation right, that's not going to be an issue. You did a paper on gap balancing, and I'm just curious, what is your state of the art right now in terms of putting them in squeaky tight, a little loose? I've seen just people yeah. all over the place on that issue. Um, how, how snug do you think a, a knee needs to be put in? Here's my deal on gap balance. It depends whether you're doing an RP or fixed. Okay, RPs have to be done a little, uh, mm -hmm. little more snug. And if I thought a patient, if I had... The operation didn't work out perfectly, and I was a little looser in flexion than I was in extension, not pathologically, but I would switch from a fixed bearing to a, from rotating bearing to a fixed bearing. Okay, that's, that's number one. Uh, number two, I'm passionate about gap balancing because measured resection just doesn't make sense. Um, we can go, I can talk for an hour on that. But um, God made us to have our medial side just a little tighter. So, Frequently, my you want to make a <clears throat> a rectangular extension gap. You want to make a rectangular flexion gap, right? and then all you got to do is equalize the gaps. That's the whole operation. And and how you do that, you know, in a gap balance method, you make 
You make your distal femoral cut. You make your proximal tibial cut. You do some releases to give yourself a rectangular extension gap. And then you flex it up. And whenever you want to do it to get tension on your ligaments in, at 90 degrees of flexion, I personally use laminar spreaders. There's a lot of different devices. But then you just cut the bone to give yourself a rectangle inflection. Now you got a rectangle extension, a rectangle inflection. All you got to do is make sure the gaps are right. You want to avoid the tendency to leave the flexion gap loose to improve flexion. If you equalize your flexion extension gaps, they're going to bend just fine. Where you get in trouble is you say, well, I want this patient to bend really good. I'm nervous. They, I might have to manipulate them. So you leave loose in flexion. They end up with flexion instability and they hate you. So if I, if I reduce with the uh, appropriate polyethylene and I get a little snap on the medial side, right? Or I have to put just a little force there. Uh, I'm okay with that. Uh, I'd like it to be just perfectly equal medial laterally. Frequently, if it's, if there's a slight trapezoid medially, um, you get a little, uh, little pop when you put the poly in, uh, that's fine. Uh, I accept that. Uh, if it's too, if you're really having to force it in there, then I, I release the anterior fibers of the superficial MCL, but I'm getting a little technical now. I like to equalize my flexion extension gaps. That's the answer to it. I'm not leaving anybody loose or putting anybody tighter in flexion. That's the, that's the, that's the real answer. When I first started uh, in this world, periosteal elevator was the instrument of choice for doing releases on the collateral. And then I started to see more and more guys using a spinal needle to accomplish that. Any thoughts either way on that? Yeah, I'm not so good with a spinal needle. I'm pretty good with an elevator. Uh, it's a stepwise process, however you do it. If we're talking about the medial side, um, I go around the posterior medial corner. That's step one. Step two, if I don't, if I'm still trapezoidal in extension, I'll strip down the medial side underneath the pes. And then if that doesn't do it, I'll take a, I'll take a 15 blade and nick the MCL. Um, but you have to be somewhat careful about that one, as that might stretch out a little bit as a, as the case goes on. So. Um, those are my those are my three moves immediately and then laterally I do a posterior lateral corner that Ranawat taught me um, I never liked the idea of putting stab holes posterior lateral near the perineal nerve knowing you could only go in 10 millimeters and if you go further you're, you're risking injury to the nerve so um, I do the Ranawat technique posterior lateral arcuate ligament complex uh, release uh, to get rid of a trapezoid uh, tight laterally Good counsel. You did a symposium years ago entitled My Worst Case Competition. <laughs> so any thoughts on your career and the one case that stood out and then any uh, teachable moments that you that you got from it? Oh, God, there's so many. I mean, you know, over 50%, 50% of my practice is revision. So, you know, there's plenty of those. Yeah. And I've made plenty of errors. I'm not perfect. Uh, and... I don't know. Some some of those were just that we did. It was kind of fun. You pick out the one that's most humorous that you remember. I, I guess the the worst. Yeah, this is probably the worst because I'm still still fighting the guy. Guy did guy did a total femur on for a horrible problem, and um, the segment I put on was a little long, and he had about a thirty degree flexion contracture that he just couldn't stretch out. And so I said, well, no problem. I can I can decrease the distal femoral segment right? And, and get you out straight. So I did that, but then I couldn't break the Morris taper. It wouldn't come off. 
the total femur. So I had the bright idea that tapers are dislodged frequently by, by vibration. And I, um, I took a saw, took the saw off, laid it on the femoral component I was going to take out, right, and started vibrating it. And sure enough, it came out. But then the rod kind of came with it. And I said, well, that's odd. So I got an x-ray, and I had vibrated off the femoral head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I not only had to finish the knee case, then I had to flip them and put the head back on. So that was that's one that stands out. That's a teachable moment right there, Doctor. Yeah, yeah like don't do total femurs. Yeah, <laughs> so what what patient I'll I'll never forget uh, a surgeon putting an X-ray up on a view box, and he said, "You know what the perfect instrument for this case is?" And I said, "What?" He said, "A telephone." Um, <laughs> what what patient do you think should absolutely be referred and not attempted? by a low volume surgeon. Well, you know, there's there's very talented low volume surgeons, so that's 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 surgeon specific and um, um you know, with good planning, a lot of surgeons can handle most anything, but uh the infection work I think probably should be done at, at a center. Um you know, there's revisions and there's revisions. And uh you know, it depends on someone's training and technical expertise. I, you know, I wouldn't say everything has to be referred, but you know, I field calls every day. But um, you know, we're happy to take anything. We got a training program. I've got a lot of help. You know, if I didn't have, you know, some of this, you just need an educated pair of hands across from you, and that's that's where the fellows are indispensable to my practice. And you know, low volume guy in the community doesn't have help. That's, you know, for a big case, you probably probably should send that one on. One question I get regularly, and since you wrote an article about it, I'm going to ask, uh, is a full component revision necessary for isolated tibial loosening? Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, I do. Okay. We see a tibial revision, and we, we disagree within our group. Um, you know, I got one guy who, you know, if the tibia's loose, he's taking off the femur and then putting cones and sleeves up the femur, and I just think that's unnecessary. Because uh, with a little patience, you can get that tibia out from under the femur, and uh, you know, I'd say I rarely have to revise the femur if it's well positioned, and uh, you know, it's, it's just straight away. Much less morbidity for the patient, and and the bottom line is, you, you go in there, and whack off the femur, and then you've got to put a cone or a sleeve in to fix it. And that's what we showed in this recent article that was published. It's going to be published on isolated tibial revisions. Um, you know, some of these things, if they get infected, that's a real disaster. Or you could have only just done a tibial revision with a little short cement step. Game over. I enjoyed your paper about the variability of pelvic orientation and the lateral decubitus position. Um, yep. Can we trust uh, any companies as tabular alignment guides, or is this a good argument for navigation, uh, intraop x-rays, robotics? What do you What do you think? Well, I get an intraoperative x-ray on every um, – on every patient with a trial in just to determine, you know, is my reamer down the femur not varus? And uh, just to check the rotation of the patient. I do a bony landmark method putting in my sockets. So, you know, I, I feel like I can put the, you know, if the patient rolls one way or another, I still understand that I've got to be a little deeper to the pubis than the issue to get my version right. But when I, I was, I picked this up when I was just, 
you put a stem in Varus, and so I would always just get one shot with the electronic, you know, x-rays now. It's so easy. You know, it takes 10 seconds to get an x-ray. And I started noticing that the pelvis was tilted one way or another. And so you can just uh, well, tilt the table this way, tilt the table this way. That way, when I go through my trialing, I know exactly that I'm, I have a spot-on lateral x-ray. And then I can assess, you know, the position of my socket as well. So one quick x-ray with a trial in keeps you out of a lot of trouble. One presentation, I saw your name on it. was awesome. Uh, how do I get out of this jam? The femur is cracked. You've done some uh, great presentations on managing uh, those moments when a surgeon is feeling not so fresh. Um, is there any commonalities as you've done talks around the country of common things that happen intraoperatively that are that are a surprise but are not so much of a surprise because you've heard it from multiple sources and and what you what you learn from that? Well, here's the thing. We're all going to have complications. I got them. Everybody's got them, right? Here's my here's my speech on that. The biggest mistake you can make when something happens is to rush to fix it. Whether it's a bleeder, whether it's a broken bone, something totally unexpected. You know, pack the wound. I tell my fellows, you go to the back table, you sit down there with a pencil and a piece of paper, right? And write down your options. And you'd be surprised how quickly you can come to the right solution. Or I've even in a big revision where I can't really, something's happened. I've broken something. The femur's broke. I got to get out of this jam, but I'm not sure how to do it. I walk, take a break, grab a, grab a soda, think about it, come back five minutes later and uh, fix it. Where you get into trouble is you try to fix it hurriedly and the ball starts cascading downhill and one complication leads to another. And then you've really got a problem on your hands. So that's my advice on the whole thing. I had our surgeon say something in a meeting once. I never forgot. Don't ever think things are so bad that they can't get worse. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, real quick, I got to ask you about cycling. Uh, I'm the old guy at the MS 150, still riding the oh, white really? foil. Uh, oh, yeah. I, so yeah. tell me, what are you a mountain bike, a road bike guy? What do you do? I'm a road bike guy who just got a gravel bike and um, riding in the mountains. Uh, somewhat dangerous. I got a place in the mountains, and it's uh, somebody got killed up there last year. Hmm. Um, so I said I'll get a gravel bike and ride on these gravel roads. The gravel roads are pretty rough. And I didn't get a front suspension, which I should have. Um, so I thought a gravel road was gravel, not, you know, big rocks and stuff. Uh, but I'm a road guy. Uh, I've been hit a couple of times. I've been down a couple of times. Yeah. I keep doing it. I have a Peloton, but I hate it because I like to go outside. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Virginia Creeper Trail. You got to oh, yeah. do it. Oh, I've done it. Do it. Yeah, I've done it. Yeah. Yeah, the Creeper Trail is fun. Uh, yeah. And uh, what's the other one? Um, that was a bunch of them. I, I, I ride all over. So, so good. Last thing, last thing okay. I got to ask you. We got a lot of reps that listen to this uh, podcast. And yeah. w- what advice do you have? You, you've had a lot of reps in your room, and I'm sure you've seen uh, reps of all stripes, good, sure. bad, indifferent. Any advice that you would yeah. give if it was? Uh, yeah. Here's my. Well, my daughter's a rep. Okay, and so okay. I'll give you give you the advice I gave my daughter. Great. There. Are, Four or five things you never say in an operating room to a surgeon in the middle of a case. Probably, I think, that might be okay. Um, Possibly, the only appropriate answers are yes, no, or uh, and if the answer is no, 
is that I'll call and find out. All right, I don't want to hear that you think or you think that might be okay. You know, if I ask you a direct question about an implant or something, and I don't really know it myself, which is on me because I should, but if I don't, you know, like what's the poly thickness of this, you know, 43 liner I'm putting in? Uh, I think it's I think it's four millimeters. So I don't want to hear that. There's only three appropriate answers. Yes, no. I'll make a call and find out. So that's what I told her. And that's the kind of rep I like. You know, either And I don't care if you don't know. Just don't don't guess. I need to know 100% because there's a patient underneath that drape. That's great advice. So, Dr. Farring, your, your CV is just uh, incredible. You've done so much over the years on the research side, implant design, uh, leadership. Yeah, I'm old. I'm old. <laughs> Leading the charge against infection. Um, you're a hero of mine in this space, and I'm just so thankful you came on the show to – to share uh, share a few pearls of wisdom with uh, with my audience. <laughs> Thanks for the call. Wow, what an amazing story! It's so inspiring to me personally when I see someone reorient hardship into a personal mission statement, so to speak, and, and then that mission culminates into all the achievements uh, under the umbrella of Dr. Tom Faring. Just amazing, and it's still going, still underway, and so many more things coming down the pipe. So. Just incredibly inspirational, and uh, I know you all got something out of that because I know I did. Great, great stuff. You're going to eat this broccoli, and you're going to like it, my mom would say. Underneath my breath, of course, I was saying, I'm going to eat it, but I am definitely not going to like it. Perseverance, like broccoli to a five-year-old, is no fun. Like losing your business due to an implant standardization contract is no fun. Like your top surgeon moving is no fun. Like being the odd man or woman out after a merger is no fun. Like having to face a customer tomorrow after the case that didn't go so well today is no fun. But we persevere, we persist positively and prayerfully plowing forward. Why? Well, number one, what's the alternative? And number two, because this time tomorrow, everything can change. So thank you so much for being part of the show today. I'm always appreciative uh, that you're out there. So as we go into this week, let's all be positive. Let's be plowing forward. Let's be avoiding Kasha at all costs. And most importantly, let's all be safe. Device Nation.